You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The latest issue of Harper's features a great cover story by Dr. Gary Greenberg entitled Manufacturing Depression. It's about the pharmaceutical industry's invention of the serotonin deficiency diagnosis and the mediocrity of antidepressants and our understanding of them. The article is smart, wry, well-written, and sharply critical of drug doctor orthodoxy. Greenberg remains strongly committed to the nuanced reality of subjectivity and the mind-body conundrum and argues against the tendency to reduce the ills of the spirit to molecules. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today, Dr. Gary Greenberg, a psychotherapist and professor of psychology. His writing on science and public policy has appeared in The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, and Harper's. He's here to talk about his recent experience in participating in a clinical trial and his eventual article that came out of that. Dr. Greenberg, how are you? I'm all right. So I have a question for you, Gary. If the results about the performance of placebos versus antidepressants are correct, and it's clear that people actually benefit from taking drugs for the treatment of depression, what is the harm given that we're prohibited from writing scripts for sugar pills currently? Yeah, well, there's a really interesting question, right? I mean, the, the placebo effect has inadvertently been studied in nearly every drug trial that's been conducted in the post-1962 uh, pharmacological age. And yet, we don't know anything about it. Furthermore, uh, doctors are at least ethically pro- prohibited from um, prescribing drugs for placebo purposes. And yet, First of all, I'm sure that it gets done all the time. And secondly, in the case of antidepressants, it's, there's no way around it because so much of the effect of antidepressants seems to be related to the placebo effect. Gary, do you think we should be permitted to treat depression writing sugar pills? The question really is, will the placebo effect work if you don't deceive people? Nobody really knows the answer to that question yet. The ethical constraint against placebo prescription, I believe is uh, the deception involved. Isn't that right? I think so, yes. So the question is, can you carve out an exception to the physician responsibility to always tell the truth to the patient? Um, Or, to put it another way, can we return to the era of physician benevolence as opposed to patient autonomy? So I think that the... my, My short answer to the question is, yeah, people should be able to prescribe whatever works, but you have to really finesse that question about deception. In the trial you were involved with, they used fish oil as the, as the potential treatment for depression. Are you familiar with the results of the trial yet? No, I was the first patient enrolled in this trial. So I got to believe that 30% of the people taking the fish oil are going to get better and 30% of the people taking the placebo are going to get better, that the results are going to be identical. If they're not identical, they'll probably be close. It would be really unusual to have a trial with a high signal-to-noise ratio in the antidepressant world. Um, there are some exceptions to that. First of all, uh, the, the recent trial, which was a pilot study of ketamine, showed a very pronounced signal uh, for ketamine. But for the most part, uh, especially with the SSRI antidepressants, it's very difficult to tease out a statistically significant difference between drug and placebo. Tell us a little bit more about ketamine. Uh, well, it's a... Um, you know, an anesthetic that is famous for causing emergence reactions. And I'm aware now I'm on a station listened to by doctors, and I'm not totally current on this, but my belief is that that's one of the reasons that it is not widely used in humans. The emergence reaction that it causes has been described 
uh, quite vividly by a number of people as being completely disembodied, as if you are a consciousness without any location, without any ego. And some people find it terrifying, particularly people who are waking up from surgery. However, some people um, have found it to be transformative, and there's been a very small but pronounced long-term underground use of ketamine for that purpose. Uh, same people that were exploring LSD and other psychedelic drugs for therapy were using uh, ketamine in that fashion. Isn't it being used now by the kids in the clubs, and it's called Special K? At a sub-emergence reaction dose. Apparently, it causes a sort of a euphoria and a, a rubbery uh, feeling. I, I don't have any personal experience with this, personally or even in my uh, talking with people. I don't know anybody who's used ketamine in that fashion. I've known plenty of people who've used it at a higher dose, not quite high enough to put you under, just high enough to bring about the emergence reaction. In any event, we have this tendency not to believe that anything that happens is real until you can find it in the biology of the brain. And recently, there have been lots of people looking at what ketamine does in the brain because of this very strange reaction and the reports of its uh, effects. And uh, finally, somebody uh, did a study, and the government-funded study, of ketamine and uh, on a short-term basis. Um, I believe it was a week follow-up, a single or um, infrequent administration of uh, ketamine would bring about a remission in depression. The uh, article in which this was published stays away from any kind of psychological or psychospiritual implications and simply addresses the biochemistry of it and reasons why this would happen. Interestingly, there is no long-term follow-up on these patients. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm talking with Dr. Gary Greenberg, a psychotherapist and professor of psychology. Dr. Greenberg, did you ever have a chance to see the TV show Huff? No. Huff went through his own little quick analysis with a doctor in one afternoon, and I'm pretty sure he took either ecstasy or ketamine with the doctor and was able to basically complete an analysis in four hours, which would have taken 20 years prior to that. So it sounds like some of these drugs would be of great benefit to be used, and they've just been kind of brushed under the table by the government 30, 40 years ago. Yes, and, well, here, and here's, of course, the, the really brilliant part of this story, of course, is that MDMA, that is ecstasy, as well as LSD, and most other of the psychedelic drugs, ketamine not being one of them, are serotonergic drugs. In fact, the original connections between serotonin, psychological state, and the fact of neurotransmission in the brain were made because of LSD. LSD contains within itself a copy of the serotonin molecule. So the fact that these drugs that, in a very modest way, like uh, Prozac, affect serotonin metabolism is just a pale representation of what we already know that they do. And certainly there are many reports, and almost all of them are anecdotal, about the value of serotonergic drugs for mental health, including depression. So what do you think about the serotonin connection? Do you think there is a correlation between serotonin levels and depression? Or is it just some sort of... uh... There's an undeniable connection between serotonin metabolism and states of consciousness and experience and the behavior that happens as a result. Whether or not we can say that there's an imbalance or a deficiency... Uh, Nobody really knows. I mean, if you uh, use LSD and you block serotonin from the uh, receptor, then you get a powerful effect on consciousness. If you use an SSRI and you simply modulate, increase the length 
of time for which the receptors are being stimulated, you get a change. You get If you use reserpine and actually deprive the synapse of uh, serotonin, you get a change, all of which can be uh, antidepressant. So I don't think we know enough. I think, you know, 200 years from now, they're going to look at what we're doing, and it's going to be like us looking back at the people who drilled holes in the pharaoh's skull. This is the dark ages of neuroscience. Can we go back to the study a little bit? You had you'd mentioned that uh, in your article that researchers came across some sort of pattern of brain activity that showed those people that were more likely to respond to placebos. And obviously the drug companies latched onto that and found that fascinating because it might be able to get them to identify those people and get them out of a trial before it even begins. Uh, What do you you think of that? The study showed that there's a specific EEG signature to placebo when people are having a placebo effect. And they're trying to extend that so that they can predict who's going to have that effect. And yes, drug companies are very interested because if they can figure out a way to get the placebo responders out of their study, then they're going to get a clearer signal-to-noise ratio. Now, one way to look at that is they're gaming the system. They're uh, trying to eliminate the base, to lower the, the bar for themselves, which you can't blame them for doing that. Another way to look at it, which is how the drug companies look at it, is if you get rid of the placebo responders, then what you're really doing is you're showing in the people that the drugs work in that the drugs work. In other words, they're assuming that when... Prozac works better than placebo, it's because there's no placebo effect at all. Whereas another assumption that's equally valid is that the placebo, the, the drug result is, is the placebo plus the drug. So nobody knows the answer to that question yet either, and uh, nobody's in a huge hurry to figure that one out. Gary, let's talk about you. Are you happy? Right now, this minute, this is a pretty good interview. <laughs> so am I, can I interpret from that that happiness is not something that lasts long, that it's moments in time? I've, uh, yeah, I mean, I've never really spent a lot of time devoting my life to being happy. It's not, it's not I'm 50 years old. I don't have that expectation anymore. I'm more interested in my life being fulfilling and rewarding and being able to be effective and loving with the people that matter to me. Uh, now, maybe those things add up to something called happiness, but um, it isn't really how I think about things. Nor, when I'm unhappy, do I tend to think about myself as um, diseased or pathological, although I have to say participating in this trial really made me think about that twice. So who came up with this whole happiness concept? Was that something that our forefathers came up with when they said that we're entitled to the pursuit of happiness, but no one, no one really said we're able to actually attain it? This is the land of optimism. So I suppose that it's hard. You know, you, this is the, the ocean that we swim in. Part of what we're always surrounded by is the expectation that we're going to be happy. Do you think it's the fact that we have expectations, and when those expectations are not met, that is what creates unhappiness? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a fair way to look at it. That's certainly the, the cognitive way of looking at it. And, you know, you can either lower your expectations or increase your happiness, or in the case of cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, SSRIs, you can do both. You know, I would imagine in your practice you've come across some people that think they're happy. So do you think they just have an incredible defense mechanism that they're deluding themselves? Well, you know, of course that's what I think, but I try not to impose that. You know, that's, that's, that's not fair. There are people who have a uh, sort of a native optimism. You know, you go back to Hippocratic medicine, and one of its more interesting uh, insights is the notion that people come into the world with temperaments. And one of those temperaments, according to Hippocrates, was being sanguine. And, uh, <clears throat> he, and, and to believe that, you, you have to accept that there are people out there in the world that have a more of a, um, an upbeat orientation to the world than others. Back to your practice, do you think traditional talk therapy works? Depends on what you mean by works. Will it treat general sadness? I think it will help people come to terms with their condition, whatever it is. 
That often uh, helps people uh, who are chronically depressed for two reasons. One of them is that it gives them a, a sense of self-possession. You come to know yourself, and there's something liberating in that. And I think it also can help because there are specific conditions of people's lives that make them unhappy. Lousy jobs, lousy marriages, um, continued resentment and other feelings from the trauma. And, and many of those are highly susceptible, I think. Many of those conditions are highly susceptible to talk therapy. Because when you talk about your life and you put your life in the frame of a story, you start to think of yourself as potentially somebody who can affect that story, who can rewrite that story if you have to. Gary, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you have been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.